This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Hara Hotel, A Tale of Syrian Refugees in Greece, by Teresa Thornhill. This is a first-hand account of a Greek refugee camp and the stories of the refugees staying there. Syrian Kurd Juwan Azad left his home and family in Damascus in 2011 to flee military service under the al-Assad regime. After several troubled years as a refugee in Turkey, he arrived in Greece by sea, on the route taken by hundreds of thousands of his fellow Syrians seeking a safe haven in Europe. But as borders closed across the Balkans in early 2016, Juwan and his fellow Syrians found themselves blocked from traveling any further. Teresa Thornhill volunteered at Hara Hotel, a makeshift camp on the Greece-Macedonia border. An Arabic speaker, she met Syrians from all walks of life as she distributed clothing and organized activities for children. One of the Syrians was Juan, who would later walk through the mountains of Macedonia to safety in Austria. In Hara Hotel, Thornhill interweaves a narrative of daily life at the camp with Juan's extraordinary story the recent history of the revolution in Syria, and an account of the ensuing civil war, painting a vivid picture of the predicament of Syrians trapped on Europe's borders. Hara Hotel, A Tale of Syrian Refugees in Greece, by Teresa Thornhill. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the latest installment of our ongoing series on the left and electoral politics. In Ohio, Dennis Kucinich is running a viable race for governor. In New York, Cynthia Nixon is running with the backing of the Working Families Party, And has Governor Cuomo truly freaked out? There are major primary fights underway in California. Most everywhere, it seems, some variant of the left is on the move. But does the fact that a one-time business-aligned Democrat like Gavin Newsom is getting away with posing as the progressive in the California race for governor indicate that the left hasn't yet built the institutional capacity to control the leftward surge underway amongst voters? I think so. Anyhow, these are amongst the topics that I'm going to discuss with my guest today, Dave Weigel, a political reporter at The Washington Post. Dave, uh, returning to the show for a second interview, is one of the few mainstream political reporters who really gets the left. He was one of just a precious few such reporters at DSA's Chicago Convention, and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of American politics. Before we get started, it's our spring fundraising drive, and we need your support to ensure the DIG's long-term financial viability. A donation of any size at patreon.com slash the DIG sends my heart a flutter. What's likely of more interest to you, however, is that we have left-wing treats on offer. Anyone donating $5 a month gets my new weekly newsletter, which includes thoughts from Aziz Rana, Timothy Mitchell, 
or whoever I've been talking to about what you should be reading if you want to go deeper on the topics discussed here on The Dig. $10 gets you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, published by Verso. $20 or more gets you a bunch of books by Dig guests and other great left-wing authors mailed to your door. So please, if you're a listener who finds this show useful in making sense of the world in order to change it, contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Our goal is 1,000 supporters by the end of June. With your help, we can get there. And without further delay, here's Dave Weigel. Dave Weigel, welcome back to The Dig, Jeff Bezos' favorite socialist podcast. Uh, Yeah, well, I haven't asked him about that, but it sounds right to me. So, Paul Ryan really missed his family. Yeah, he wanted to spend more time. uh, And people who uh, wondered about the sincerity of that uh, point out that if he was vice president, he might have also spent a little time being busy, not with his family. But, you know, it's actually easier to be a vice president and come home every night than is to be what he was. Uh, I think it was more a case of of just he he came he came he saw he did he did his tax cuts and he he was out um his ambitions his ambitions for curtailing the welfare state were never as big once he actually had power as they were when he was when he was kind of a national political star right so he did the main thing he could achieve and then bugged out you know there's something to be said for that how does this play for Randy Bryce aka Iron Stash is he still one, is he still likely to win the primary? And two, does does Ryan's departure, as some Republicans have told you, deprive him of a foil that has proven really useful to him? It's a fair question. And so both Bryce and Ryan's campaigns had polling in the final weeks that diverged completely. I, I don't know exactly why, apart from sampling differences, but the, the Ryan poll had him easily winning by like 21 points. Uh, the Bryce poll had him very close, and then once once Ryan jumped out, had Bryce leading narrowly over any of the Republicans been mentioned as p- possible candidates. Uh, and I should say that the first clue that it's not a slam dunk for Republicans is that they've had a couple candidates now. Uh, Ryan Priebus, is, Priebus, the former RNC chairman, chief of staff, he was kind of a long shot. But Robin Voss, who was the longtime assembly speaker, who people thought was a top candidate to take him, he 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 decked out. Um, and so it's it's not going it's not going that amazingly for them. Uh, and it is very winnable for Democrats. There, I think de- really there, there's a difference of just two months that tells you everything here. Um, Democrats a month ago were in – or I'd say the start of the year in Wisconsin. Let me rephrase that. Democrats at the start of the year in Wisconsin, were, when I talked to them, were traumatized by having come up short so many times to Walker and then having lost the presidential election when – for every joke people tell now about Hillary, no Democrat thought on – November 7th at Wisconsin was losable. You know, it wasn't going to be a landslide, but she was going to win it. Uh, so they they won a special election in real rural part of the state, and then they won the Supreme Court race, and they've got a lot more confidence generally. So the old um, saw about how, boy, this um, district's just drawn in a way we can't possibly win. Uh, it's not a blue district, but they're pretty optimistic about it. To me, what's most remarkable about Ryan's exit is that it's this faction of right-wing free marketeers 
led by by Ryan and others who who I think are often described as traditional conservatives, but in in reality are the product of multiple successful right wing insurgencies within the party. And what what I find so remarkable is that they folded twice. They one quickly dropped any opposition to or really even criticism of Trump, even though they have serious mm-hmm. ideological differences with him. And then now they're running for the exits ahead of a likely Democratic wave election. And what I find so interesting about this is that Ryan and his ilk have always liked to portray themselves as these idea-driven conservatives. But but to me, as as an ideologue um, myself, this uh-huh. is really, really cowardly behavior for, for, for self-styled ideologues. That's one way to put it. I mean, the point I was trying to make at the start of this was that Ryan had uh, in 2007 and 2010, like before they took power, would release these ambitious documents about a, a bold Randian future where the government would trick down to the size you draw. Uh, you could draw in a bathtub and uh, the Social Security Is this a roadmap? privatized. Oh, the roadmap. Yeah, and uh, he never, he never with an arrangement that could get anything through, as we saw with the tax cut, um, he never did it. I mean, the uh, the lesson of the Obamacare fight in the end in the Senate was that there are people, there just aren't enough Republicans who actually want to take uh, take away benefits people are, are used to and have paid in for and you know, in, in favor of the wonder of spending your whole life on the phone trying to maximize your your uh, deal with your HMO. Like in and on all these plans too, not only were they not as politically popular as it was as it looked, but they weren't very serious. I mean, Ryan would leave these giant holes uh like a, literally savings TK uh when it came to a lot of the Medicare plans. <laughs> For example, my my favorite as somebody who covered a lot of covered and covers house races, my favorite aspect of this was that uh Republicans spent, you know, conservatively like 100 million dollars on TV ads attacking Democrats for voting for quote-unquote Medicare cuts, uh, meaning they had voted for the ACA, and the ACA actually, you know, with some success, this is a reason I think it's not very popular with Jacobin readers, with some success was actually cutting long-term health care costs. Uh, so it did cut the long-term growth in Medicare spending, something that uh, Ryan did not kept saying he took seriously but never did anything to change. Not just that, but his budgets all assumed those cuts would stay in place. So they'd both run ads saying these cuts are terrible. They put out a plan saying we need to cut these things. And then Ryan would assume in his budgets that it had been cut already. And if, if that sounds ridiculous to you, well, that's that's kind of the story of how the guy ran circles around uh, around his party and some of the media. Although I do think the, uh, the coverage he got in the last week was pretty brutal. Um, it's hard to define yourself as the fiscal hawk and then – the week the deficits rise to $1 trillion again, say, oh, well, you know, it was, uh, it was hard. <laughs> we couldn't really get all this done because it's really hard. His reputation as the most, you know, serious gym rat inside the Beltway sort of started to wear, wear thin. <laughs> Not even that, no. He had a reputation as the, the guy. So there's a overall consensus in Washington. There has been for a long time and is, is pillowed by a lot of money from Peterson Institute and from like-minded rich people who, um, if they're being honest, would like to have a country where people pay lower taxes and have to deal with more uh, deal with the quote unquote free market for a lot of the, their benefits. Uh, so you know, let's get rid of the guaranteed pensions, price of 401ks, et cetera. I don't need to go into all that. Um, he had a great reputation, not just as the guy with those ideas, but the guy who would do them be, to tackle this this long time this this Moby Dick uh, 
over the waves of our Medicare and Social Security spending. And I should say, you know, I, somebody who went to college in 2000s and went and started in politics in that middle of that era, even when the debt the debt was about half what it is now, you could still stoke that panic. But I think what hurt Ryan. Ryan's reputation on the way out is he still was mouthing those sentiments, but it was it's been proven through a couple of Republican presidencies now that just the party doesn't actually take that seriously. It is more a uh, it is something that is desired ideologically that they don't run on. If they do run on it, they lose. Um, if they do in, impl- try to implement it in Congress, then they have to back away from it. Uh, and you have in this context the contrast of a, a tax cut that had you had you not done that tax cut, you'd have trillion dollars more to play with. It's just not very credible to do that and then run into um, into into entitlement spending as, as the, the crisis facing America. It was found beyond my own report. I was working on other stuff last week, frankly, just in reading the coverage of the balanced budget amendment vote and all those sorts of things. Um, I, th- I think the, the, the general tone of coverage was, well, these guys said a lot that they didn't take seriously themselves. And that was pretty new for Ryan. That was not how he was covered up to that point. So do you think that is exit as had as much to do with the contradictions of libertarian Randian governance than it as it did with the contradictions between the congressional Republicans and Trump. I kind of agree with Matt Iglesias Vox here that uh, there is a narrative that because because Trump is kind of the sun in these in, in this little in this solar system, uh, everything revolves around him. The question for a Republican is whether you stood with Trump or not, whether you change say you change the party from. Uh, the one you like more to one that uh, fits Trump more, I feel like that, that's not really what happened on a policy side of things. Had had Trump, if you looked at Trump's uh, campaign platform uh, and took it took it seriously, and you looked at his speeches, which were different than the campaign platform, um, you would assume some combination of getting in there, passing a big infrastructure bill, pulling out of all the trade deals, and not renegotiating them, um, and using economic growth to shore up entitlements. I hate the word entitlements, but just, it's quicker than saying it. It's benefits, <laughs> I'll say. Um, that's not what happened. No, he. It, they didn't do infrastructure for. They're not going to do it. I mean, it's they've got functionally probably less than 100 days of work left in Congress for this session. They're not. Gonna, they're not going to get to that. Uh, what they did do was the sort of deep tax cuts that uh, are supposed to be accompanied by entitlement spending. And Republicans who ran on that stuff in the 16 primary didn't even win. Um, this is basically the policy Jeb Bush would have run on, and I think Republican voters and the rest of the country were pretty clear on whether they wanted Jeb Bush to run anything ever again. I want to talk about the primaries, and my first question is, what is the current state of play between left and establishment forces in the Democratic Party? Um, give me a general overview, and then I have a bunch of specific races to ask about. I am a bit of a flying the ointment here the uh, and I'm about to mix so many merit narratives just like just like I mean uh, there is a sense in I guess the commentary that the Democrats are hopelessly divided because well Republicans were hopelessly divided and they're out of power and if you look on Twitter you can find people yelling about each other's campaigns and saying such as to sell out you can see uh, people showing up to Richard Cordray or Kamala Harris events and saying they're corporate chills, things like that. You can see that, uh, but it's all happening. And here's where I differ from a lot of people writing about it. It's all happening in a context where the parties basically conceded um, most of the Bernie Sanders platform in 2016. Uh, you now have 
most of the left institutions uh, – let's look at the Center for American Progress, for example, because that's kind of a bête noir for a lot of people who think corporate money is ruining the left and the Democratic Party. It's moved them away from labor rights and towards this false uh, false dawn of responsible conservatives. You know, And CAP is a place that five, six years ago was coming up with deficit reduction plans um, to, to meet the Pete Peterson standard. Uh, now the CAP, CAP plans are basically let's tax the rich a lot more. Uh, let's do go towards full full employment and let's expand Medicaid for everybody. Not in ways that Bernie would, would like, you know. But r- the important thing there is they're ruling out the old Democratic consensus, which is um, a thing I've heard from people from liberal candidates for office or progressive candidates for office who do, don't like Pelosi. The problem they have with her is she seems to kind of be kind of be bound in this old consensus where if you promise too many things, people are going to think, oh, those Democrats are out for big spending. I want something more means-tested and balanced. Yeah, you just don't hear about means-testing much in the Democratic Party anymore. So in these races I've covered, I've been been in the last couple weeks, I was in Texas and Illinois and Minnesota and Ohio, and there is nobody making the, let's say, the Martin O'Malley, that's not fair. Nobody making the... The Joe Lieberman argument or the Mark Penn argument, or they're just not relevant in the party anymore. And in a party that won the popular vote last time, is has been winning um, on about eight to ten point swing in, in a lot of races. It's not a party that has has shrunk as it's moved to there. Uh, the just the people who were arguing you need more means testing, they've been discredited because it. We learned that if you promise the moon to people, they like it better than means testing. Um, I was talking to Rich Cordray, who's running for governor of Ohio, in a situation that's become very funny because in in D.C., the Republicans can imagine no one more left wing than Richard Cordray, the former head, the head of, of the, the C- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In Ohio, he is running against Dennis Kucinich and being framed as the corporate uh, center shill, et cetera. Um, but that's one of his problems is that when he talks about. Well, I, when I asked him, hey, Kucinich is promising single payer in Ohio and a ban on assault weapons and a bunch of big, exciting bumper sticker ideas, and you're not. Um, what did you learn? What did you learn from from the, the 2016 campaign? Because it seems like uh, big promises make more sense than, than than small ones. And he was saying to me, oh well, uh, you need to be realistic about what you can achieve. You, you you're going to be working with a lot of Republicans if you win, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, he's not. He's not running away with this primary he's supposed to run away with. Just the the mood of the voters, it's not even as much ideological. It's that everyone agrees that we needed to move uh, towards let's say let's say generally we need to move towards universal health care coverage of some kind. We need to move towards higher wages and and uh, a higher minimum wage uh, and free college. Let's say well, those are three principles everyone agrees with at some level. Um, Everyone, the the fight in the party is now between okay, well we need universal community college, but not the rest of it, and oh we need you know expanded Medicare, but only for people above fifty, not everybody, and then the people who want universal, and that's that's a big change. I mean, you did not go back to the 2004 or even 2008 debates on what people were imagining. It was much more hidebound than that. Uh, I'd also say I, I sometimes forget to ask candidates if they favor legal marijuana because they basically all do now, or at least decriminalizing it. And that's another issue. It used to be contested. You'd find you know, the kind of green room gnomes of the world that like, <laughs> you see on TV but don't seem to do anything in terms of uh, running a campaign. Um, them arguing that it's too left-wing. It's, it's just kind of understood in these primaries now. And now even so Cuomo even, wants it. <laughs> yeah. Within like 24 hours of, of Nixon saying he wanted it. And that's the thing. And She wanted um, it. 
what you need to prove that this is a losing issue is, you know, an election loss or something that cuts against this, and you haven't really seen one. Uh, I think what's important about uh, the first thing that I mentioned too, I was, men- I was mentioning CAP uh, and how they were seen as emblematic of the party moving towards donors and away from labor. Uh, a lot of what is being discussed here is stuff that, that labor wants. I mean, Democrats really focus on protecting pensions, expanding health care um, from like a working perspective. I mean, like a John Yarmouth, who will run the budget committee if Democrats win the House, the pitch he always makes on health care is, uh, hey, look, if we're going to compete with and it, with Canada and Europe and China and all these countries, we're saving our employers a ton of money if every every, every worker has um, health care taken care of. If everyone has some kind of universal Medicare, we take that off the table. It, it is a lot more worker focused on a little and for all the kind of yammering by identity politics, that those just aren't in play. There's a lot more discussion in the party of how you move uh move left on things that would raise wages and employ more people. And that's not necessarily where Hillary always was. On Ohio, I think that is a really good exemplar of how much the center of gravity in the Democratic Party has move to the left, both in terms of what's being debated and proposed there and also the fact that someone like Cordroy, who was considered such a, you know, bete noir of the the right as head of CFPB mm-hmm. in D.C., that he's the centrist there. Um, but the the debate, as I understand it, is that in terms of the pragmatics of things in Ohio, is that the party establishment is arguing that a Kucinich candidacy will throw the election to Republicans while right. Kucinich is arguing precisely the opposite, that his economic populism can win over Trump voters. What's what's your take? This is what makes this era so weird. Is you, it, the last times, and I've been writing about this for like two years, the last times the Democratic Party lost something, uh, there was a huge reckoning in the years after the election. In each case, people decided, well, the problem was we went too far to the left. I mean, there's um, the, I think, maybe nightmare scenario for a progressive who wants to stay within the party was that this this election might look like 1968, uh, which was Humphrey win. Sorry, Humphrey loses, but only by a little bit. Yet the forces inside the Democratic Party say, "What we need to do is move a little bit more, move, move further from the labor base and more towards um, more towards this young, rising, college-educated baby boomer class and pander to them and, and kind of forget about the wage thing because we're not going to win on that." Um, this is a time you have like a much more robust. Uh, labor labor side of the Democratic Party anyway. Um, that didn't really happen this time. So I, I just – I have not seen much discussion of the Democratic Party moving in that direction apart from you know, the op-ed that Mark Penn and some felon or another uh, <laughs> write for the, uh, for the Times every three months, and people make fun of it on Twitter. And that's about the extent of it, just in, in covering candidates. Um, I don't want to soft-pedal it. I mean no labels exists and no labels spent a lot of money <laughs> to make sure that um, Dan Lipinski got elected – I'm going to have a T-shirt made that uh, says no labels exists. Well, it exists. And it gets a, you know, there's money sloshing yeah. around, but it doesn't have like a, a praxis or an ideology. No labels. Or a just... constituency that's more than dollar based. Or any of that. I mean, one thing I always look at, and I look at the same thing in like the Tea Party era, the Chamber of Commerce would say, hey, you know, we're, we're going we're not swinging for our 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 candidates. You know, it's enough of these unelectable Tea Party people. We're going to defend the establishment. And the way they always did was with like a TV ad saying the real conservative is Tad Cochran. Tad Cochran hates Obamacare. And he's, like, they basically could only outflank 
um, the insurgents of the party by agreeing with him on every single issue. And that's even no labels intervention in the Illinois primary in the third district. It just attacked the um, his opponent, Marie Newman, on kind of character grounds. It was not she's too liberal. It was uh, not she wants to raise your taxes. It was, hey, fellow Democrats, um, she ran a restaurant into the ground, <laughs> voted against her for that reason. <laughs> so there's just not there's there's not a a real tussle um, in in these things. And even you know Texas is another ex- example where that I guess you know to be fair, a thing that has really colored. Um, coverage of these Democratic primaries is the uh, race in the Texas 7th District, which is Houston suburbs, where uh, Laura Moser was really kind of one of, I'd say, I'd say of three very progressive candidates, but the one who had the best connections to our, our revolution, um, who got the And the DCCC tried to kneecap her. Right. And the DCCC completely ineffectively kneecapped her. Uh, it, it, there is something very true that I, I think Ryan Graham and the Interceptor the best expressing this. That the D, yeah. the D Trump is one of the last DC institutions that thinks that you really still need to have quote unquote moderate candidates to appeal to people. Um, the rest of the parties basically moved on and said, look, if we run whoever we run, get accused of wanting to bring socialism back to not back to <laughs> bringing the country into socialist tyranny and raise everyone's taxes by $10 trillion. So what's the point of, of, of running a moderate if they're not going to get our base excited and they're going to get hit with the same attacks? The DTRIF still is trying to move people who uh, are just are, – are seen as more moderate by the kind of people who, who attend DCCC meetings. Uh, and the, the, in Texas, you know, again, but the argument they made against Moser was not she's too left-wing. They released all this opposition research on her online a week before the primary – with early voting underway, that was just she wrote an essay. Uh, well, she takes a home to home she, she talks shit on Texas on her, or someplace in right. Texas, not Texas in general. I think some like particular place she's from in Texas Paris, that's Texas, not in the district. Is, is it in the district? Of, it's not in the district at all. Paris, Texas is yeah, about well, as far as what we compare it to. I mean, it's, it's about as far from, from Houston as you know, if you're in Portland, Maine, making fun of, of like Charlotte, North Carolina or something. It's very far, uh, and it's a movie too. It is. But the movie is also not set there. <laughs> the movie, <laughs> movie makes a reference to land owned in Paris, Texas, but it's not. It's much like Fargo. Barely takes place in in, in Fargo at all. Um, and so, uh, they didn't even attack her on left wing issues. The if you talk to them, as I did during this whole process, they were not saying she's. Uh, they're not saying she's she's too left wing to win. They were saying she's got like a bunch of problems that are going to alienate her from voters. So they won't, uh, So it's other races where you've seen the DCCC fret that somebody with a lot of money and progressive energy behind him is going to blow it for everyone. Um, and look, that that just to uh, clarify what happened sorry. in the seventh district. Um, sure. She it backfired because she ended up winning one of two slots in an upcoming runoff for the primary. Uh, yeah, she already got it, but she was probably going to win one of those, but they basically ensured she did. With that, it would, and this is more information anyone needs to know about it, but um, I think that the guy, I got the sense there, the DCCC really wanted this guy, um, Jason Weston, this doctor with great close ties to the district to, to win the nomination, and he was getting momentum, and they probably kept, kept his momentum and ensured that Moser got into the runoff. I want to talk about some other races that have already happened before we move on to future ones. You have reported on Chicagoland's third congressional district, where right. 
Marie Newman ran a lefty challenge to a leading blue dog Democrat. And I didn't even realize until recently that there were still blue dog de- like that, that they still like, like a website. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like a very like 90s, 2000 vintage kind of thing. But uh, Bill Lipinski. Bluedogs.geocities.com. <laughs> I had an angel fire website. Um, uh, it was uh, in praise of the Simpsons. And I was like 10 years old. Uh Marie Newman narrowly lost, but claims, and this is a quote from your article, that she moved him on immigration, moved him on health care. What's your assessment of how that shook out? So uh, Lipinski is this unique, very unique situation where uh, his, his father had run in that district, basically owned it, never had a serious challenge. Um, in 2004, he retired when it was too late to have a primary, meaning the party got to pick a candidate, and lo and behold, Dan Lipinski, his son, moved back from uh, teaching at Duke in North Carolina to be the congressman from from the 3rd District. And so he had a couple of challenges. They all fell flat, and Lipinski was fairly fairly free to be a conservative Democrat on a ton of issues. Um, he was with labor on everything important, so he protected that flank. But when it came to immigration, when it came to abortion, when it came to gay rights, he was – if you look through the list, you'd, you especially if you – this is predates uh, the Nate Silver <laughs> prediction of how people are going to vote. But you look at the list. You know, he was voting with guys from 30-point Republican districts, and he was from one that not only went for Obama by landslides, but, but always went Democratic. It was loyally Democratic. It was, um, and so. And this is Newman, like a white South Side guy. Yeah, he's a white South Side guy. It goes over to Cicero and a couple suburbs, and in, in the end, he lost everything except the city of Chicago. So the parts in Chicago, heavily Hispanic, um, and just kind of more reliable machine votes, uh, those all broke for 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 him. They, people turned them out. I think the sense people got after the election was that uh, the J.B. Pritzker machine um, probably, probably did save him by the, to the tune of like 2,000 votes. Uh, the, but the, during this primary, I mean, I they had one debate, uh, which I attended, where Newman was – I would not I would not say flustered. Newman was, I think, flabbergasted because the moderator would keep pushing Lipinski on stances he'd taken on gay rights or immigration, and he would just kind of flip and say, well, like, I, I'm proud – I was proud to vote for this. I was proud to vote for this caucus. He had a couple of couple of uh, diversions where he, he would uh, he would find a way not to say how he voted on, for example, like a um, – Religious protection thing, or reframe what the religious protection bills were about. So, to, to, but to the confidence that he had as a conservative Democrat was completely gone, and he was trying to reframe himself as a Trump opponent. Uh, and in this way, I think he was kind of he was demonstrative of what you might see in a lot of races. Like I assume that's how Cuomo is going to run his campaign in New York um, once he stops panicking over over Nixon. Is I'm the guy who's standing up to Trump every day on guns and things like that. Olpinski reframed himself as a standing up to Trump guy. In that process, you know, voted with people on DACA, um, uh, pulled his sponsorship of some religious freedom amendments, uh, didn't go to the March for Life this year like he usually went. Uh, and will he flip right back? Uh, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, the 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 thing that is for a long term planning, what what progressives want to do was have every district that's blue have somebody who supports universal Medicare, and that's not Lipinski. Lipinski remains a member of the Blue Dogs who's going to fret about that being too costly. And he um, will so, have future but, races to run. So, And he will. I mean, there's going to be a challenge. I mean, he had two members of his delegation in Illinois who rejected him, and that's going to keep happening. Uh, if people feel that he is the he is the impediment to getting progressive bills passed, then that's going to keep happening. And I, But he knows it now, and he had no real threat before. 
I don't know the answer to this, but uh, I, you just saying that New, Marie Newman won all the parts of the district outside of the south side of Chicago, while Lipinski won heavily Latino areas of the south side, makes me think that she did not successfully replicate the sort of coalitions that buoyed uh, Chuy Garcia in his no. um, insurgent campaign, failed but pretty impressively insurgent campaign against Rahm Emanuel. No, she tried to, and look, Chewy's campaign was a was a masterpiece, and also our revolution, Illinois, won a lot of what it got involved with, uh, in, but in, in lower in lower level races that did not have a national spotlight on them, and I think I maybe mentioned in the seventh paragraph of the story, they out, they unseated a couple of conservative Democrats from safe districts. Just the, the the education is to, hey here for the first time is a bunch of mail and some TV ads explain to you that your your Democrat was voting and cut your pension uh, things like that they proved they could do it this race was uh, just one step too far I mean I, I even get the sense people thought Newman might have won if the election was a week earlier it took uh, Lipinski a little little bit more time to gear, gear everything up in Newman's defense you mm-hmm. wrote. Um, no incumbent Democrat in Congress has lost a primary since 2014 when Massachusetts's scandal plagued Representative John F. Tierney was defeated by Seth Moulton. No congressional Democrat has lost a primary seen as an ideological contest since 20, 2008 when Maryland's Donna F. Edwards ousted Representative Albert R. Wynn. I knew incumbency was powerful, but but wow. I mean, at least it's powerful on the Democratic side. It hasn't proven so much so for for Republicans, I guess. It is, and also um, just the Democratic base is – look, it's a – it changes a little bit from district to district, but it's the base of the Democratic Party now is about only 55 percent white voters, more more educated, uh, um, and and very transactional, where if, if you are a member who – they talk to anyone in New York who has to deal with their state senators, if you actually do bring services back home and don't cast like a vote that becomes infamous, then you're probably fine. I mean – uh, you don't have. I think the main thing you don't have is this media infrastructure. Where um, if I'm a generic Republican voter and I'm 71 years old or something, and am watching TV, I'm watching hours and hours of television telling me that um, such, that true conservatism has been betrayed. Uh, and, and then you get in your I'm, car and listen to hours of radio saying the yeah. same. And this isn't a new point, but I feel like it has been really more determinative than ever. I mean, if Florida is a place I've covered a little bit less last year, um, Republicans admit like this huge advantage Ron DeSantis is running for governor has there is that he's on Fox all the time defending Trump. So Republican voters are seeing him on TV all the time. Uh, they might not know anything else he stands for, but he's defending the president, saying we should fire Mueller and all that sort of stuff. He's running against this poor schlub who's just been working to be governor for eight years and not making those uh, decisions. It's it's just the ability. Um, I guess the the time it takes to inform your base that your opponent has been uh, a heretic. Uh, it just it's a, it's a it's a lot easier. To, easier <laughs> the to left do. doesn't have an infrastructure for for that sort of thing, and MSNBC doesn't obviously even come close. <laughs> no, not at all. Especially MSNBC. This is a kind of a a big debate. Uh, uh, a big debate among. Uh, I think I find on. On the left all the time is the reason I you see I'll put it this way you, you see Bernie Sanders on CNN more than you see him on MSNBC and why and why is that um, it's it's in large part because MSNBC brings people on to talk about whether the scandal to bring Trump down and Sanders doesn't put up with that but it does limit the limit the aperture of what gets discussed whereas on the right there's no limit whatsoever one last question about races that have 
already happened, uh, and this was not a primary. I, I wonder what you make of Connor Lamb's victory in Southwest Pennsylvania. M- my read is that uh-huh. you can read it two ways and probably should read it both of these ways. On the one hand, yes, Lamb won in part because he ran right on issues like guns in an area where people often hold positions on things like guns that are anathema to the left. But I also think at the same time that his race showed that there is a big appetite in these rural and Rust Belt Trump Democrat regions for a more muscular left economic populism. I, I think that both are true, that the narrative doesn't read um, in a entirely convenient way either for uh, moderate establishment Democrats or for Ber- the Bernie crowd left. I think I think it's like both. What do you think? I, I think it's right. So I covered Pennsylvania 18 very closely. I was there five times for different stretches of the time. And uh, I'd say one thing about Lamb's campaign was entirely about uh, health care and jobs and benefits. That was that was it. I mean, it, it, his, his biography as well. I mean, he so the way that and this is, I think, a, probably a weakness Republicans have going into elections is they, they are much more because of that infrastructure. They have a cocoon around them when it comes to bad news and Democrats do not. Um, I think Republicans told until after they lost the election, well, you know, Conor Lamb had a great buy. That's why he won. Uh, well, that was part of it. That was how he introduced himself. But his issues and at the doors and on TV were all about those issues, were all about jobs and, and, and benefits. That was it. I mean, I think one that just ended with like healthcare period, jobs period, uh, social security period. Uh, that was, and so I'd point I'd point to that first. But I would say the coalition he put he put together in this district um, suggested that the, you're not getting back a lot of the Democrats who used to vote on those issues. He got some of them, so he lost uh, Southwest Pennsylvania by less than any Democrat since uh, John Kerry. Um, but and he lost it narrowly against a Republican who is far to the right of George Bush on things like entitlements. Not even you know it's impossible to imagine Republicans now running and winning a primary on something like Medicare Part D, right? Even if they're even if they're not going to cut it when you know, when they have power, it's just important to them ideologically to not do that kind of thing. Uh, but you know you had a fairly Ian Randian Republican do very well with uh, working class white voters in rural areas. Uh, and well enough that you know he would have won, but for Lamb doing a ton better, uh, building on Hillary Clinton's gains in the suburbs. Uh, and the suburbs of Pittsburgh are not all rich and leafy and 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 college educated. There are some that are a little little bit little bit poor, but actually, uh, Rick Saccone, who lost, did better in those places. And so Lamb was able to cut some of the losses. But I think that this whole, the debate inside the Democratic Party of whether you can ever win back those voters. You need to – I think the the dream, the realistic dream for Democrats is probably get back to maybe only losing those voters as much as John Kerry and Barack Obama did, never winning them like Bill Clinton did. That's just over. Um, you, the, and the test is if you're, if you're Hillary, you're screwing up by um, alienating those voters in, in the hopes of you know, outmatching them with suburbanites. You need, to, you need to kind of compete for both, and Lamb found a way to do that that she never did. I'd say Bob Casey's doing that now in his Senate race. And, you know, it's polling in April, it's not polling in October, but he's up by 19 points in a race that Republicans thought they were going to be competitive. Uh, and he, which is, an know, imp- which is impressive for a candidate who consistently seems like he's asleep while he's talking to you. 
<laughs> oh, you know, in a lot of case he does talk like this, and he takes a long time to answer it. Look, I mean, a lot of these guys, but I, 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 the thing about the way he's presenting himself is like uh, he is the he backs Trump on the steel tariffs. Uh, he opposes him on health care cuts. Um, that's that's kind of the message. But even he thinks. I mean, this is a guy who, when he beat Rick Santorum, uh, won Southwest Pennsylvania, and he doesn't think he'll do that again. He thinks he'll cut those losses and do a ton better in the suburbs. But the point is that that's how he's doing it. He's not, he's, not saying, he's not looking at this and saying, well, what I need to do is uh, appeal to Republican voters on, you know, means to, on specific means test plans that make sense for them. No, he's running a fairly populist campaign. And there'll be similar dynamics at play looping back to Ohio uh, in the general election for whoever wins, whether it's Kucinich or Corduroy, how do you what who's likely to be the Republican candidate there? And geographically speaking, what's the race going to come down to? Well, funny thing in Ohio is that I don't like to put every race in the 2016 Bernie Hillary frame. Not many of them fit there. Uh, even this doesn't fit there, especially because Bernie has refused to endorse Kucinich. Um, but the there is this oversensitivity, uh, maybe the correct amount of sensitivity, but, but people are ready to pounce if they feel like the establishment, quote-unquote, is intervening uh, uh, in, a, in a big primary like this. Whereas Republicans are kind of like putting up with it, with uh, Mike DeWine, who was a senator and attorney general. and He's had like every job in the state. <laughs> yeah, had every job in the state for over, since the 70s. Uh, he's not doing debates. He's kind of going on TV, but he's not running a a a campaign uh, terribly connected to, to the voters. Meanwhile, every Democrat, and they're, they're kind of proud of this. They're, he's running for a coronation. Get, yeah, he's running for a coronation. Democrats uh, are, are, would like people to notice that they are not doing that for Cordray. They are, the state parties refuse to endorse him. County parties are allowed to do what they want, but they've had four debates, and people had to show up, show up at them. They've uh, not made it easy for him, but their voters think they have. Whereas Republican voters, I think, are just not as as sticklers right now for for this guy's sort of thing. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Work, The Last 1,000 Years by Andrea Kamlazi, translated by Lauren Ballhorn and Jacob K. Watson. Say the word work, and most people think of some form of gainful employment. Yet this limited definition has never corresponded to the historical experience of most people, whether in colonies, developing countries, or the industrialized world. That gap between common assumptions and reality grows even more pronounced in the case of women and other groups excluded from the labor market. In this important intervention, Andrea Komlazi demonstrates that popular understandings of work have varied radically in different ages and countries. Looking at labor history around the globe, from the 13th to the 21st centuries, Kamlazi sheds light on both discursive concepts and the concrete coexistence of multiple forms of labor, paid and unpaid, free and unfree. From the economic structures and ideological mystifications surrounding work in the Middle Ages, all the way to European colonialism and the Industrial Revolution, Kamlazi's narrative adopts a distinctly global and feminist approach, revealing the hidden forms of unpaid and hyper-exploited labor, which often go ignored yet are key to the functioning of the capitalist world system. 
work the last 1,000 years will open readers' eyes to an issue much thornier and more complex than most people imagine, one which will be around as long as basic human needs and desires exist. Work the last 1,000 years by Andrea Komlazi. Out now from Verso Books. So on, on Kucinich, well, we've we've already discussed how his being neck and neck with Corduroy is really shows how much the party base has has moved leftward in recent years and, and rather quickly. But I want to ask you about the media coverage of, of Kucinich. There was a great Washington Post profile recently, I think Not by, by David, me, but yes, by David Montgomery. <laughs> Better than I would have written, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was excellent, and and, and it t- touched on something that I've been uh, thinking about since 2016, which he was treated for years as this oddity and gadfly when he ran for president, and now that the party base has shifted so powerfully in his direction, um, the media narrative, I think, is like struggling, the framing is, str- is uh, rushing and struggling to catch up. What's your take, what role do you think the media had during Kucinich's prior runs for president in in turning him into this ridiculous caricature rather than ever seriously engaging with his ideas. This is someone, I'm not saying he's like uh, perfect by any means, but this is someone who was extraordinarily critical of the, the, the war on terror when it was, you know, really ramping up and he was just sort of like framed as this bizarre interloper who didn't belong on the stage. Yeah, well, I think there, there's a mistake there that's made every cycle, which is um, a lot of the coverage of a presidential campaign is, can this person win? Uh, and then occasionally there's a, there's like a there's a little space carved out for, well, check out this interesting idea <laughs> that this, this, this other candidate's coming. And late in the cycle, there's the check out these crazy people who have their names on the ballot. Um, <laughs> that are that are not going to win this election, but I think he was treated in the, in the second category as like, well, um, we've done ten stories about how Kerry's struggling. Let's you know hang out in Jefferson, uh, Iowa, and or Jefferson County, Iowa, and talk to the the, the people who are passionate about Kucinich um, or uh, things mm-hmm. like that. So he he fit into that because uh, if if you were coming at this from Democratic donors and endorsers and the party firmament, he was never going to win. Um, and true, he didn't. Also, I'd say look, overall, Kucinich's politics, there's not like a lot of proof that was, if uh, the Kucinich style of politics works. I mean, the reason that I think that the, had Democrats lost the 2008 election and then you know, had, by running on universal health care, I don't think they'd be closer to it now than they were by you know passing Obamacare and then the base moving. I, I definitely, I mean, my whole theory of politics is, is uh, voters and activists moving the parties. And uh, the Kucinich the style is somewhere in between where he is a, um, a, a, a power, a kind of charismatic figure who um, is proud to say he's the one person who stood up for this or that. And he, he does believe correctly. If you need, you need to have people in, in these, in places and key moments who are not going to just sell you out. Um, but he's not been terribly effective in passing stuff, and uh, but now I'm getting back to this Ouroboros of, of spin because you know how effective was Carrier Edwards at passing stuff when they were taken seriously as candidates in 2000 and 2004. You're right, there was a the coverage of him uh, was limited, but I would I would say it was limited in, the, in some of the same ways um, about 
fringier Republican candidates who ended up changing the parties a lot. And I, uh, my first campaign I covered very— It was initially limited about Bernie in the same way. I very clearly yeah. remember what page of the New York Times, uh, deep inside you know, the national section, his announcement was carried in. Well, and I remember a uh, Times story the weekend of his, his launch tour. I remember in part because I couldn't convince— couldn't convince people this is a, another job, not the post, to, to send me for the rest of the tour. So I just <laughs> took a couple of days off. Um, and I remember this big takeout story on how uh, he's an old guy and his voters are all old too because they went to a town hall and the voters were somewhat old. Um, <laughs> and that didn't turn out to be the story. I mean, he you know, ended up winning every single demographic of people under 30 uh, in most of these primaries, I think even close in the southern states where he got killed with black voters. Um, but yeah, there was. You can't. I mean, there's just not the space really to go and write. Hey, this this guy has a this, there's this ideological thing brewing with this candidate. It's a great idea. I, I think that you have to start with the voters, and sometimes if they're demanding something, uh, then then from there you say, well, which candidate is best at capturing this? Um, and so yeah, I don't think I, I think Kucinich suffered from that, but a lot of Republicans have suffered from that who end up being relevant. I mean, how much. Coverage was there of Jeb Bush, who's completely irrelevant figure in American life, and well, is kind of destined to be that way. Uh, he could give a college speech every once in a while. That's about it. Um, compared to the coverage in the very very beginning of of Sanders and Trump, or I'd say years before that, the coverage of of, of Ron Paul. Um, uh, he did not win anything. Won no primaries. Won some delegates, but had a bunch of ideas that you know. I think found people both came up and also that, that he would say, and people found answers in them, right? I mean, he would, I don't think his voters before they heard of him were that obsessed with the Federal Reserve, but he had this very simple answer about how um, the federal government shouldn't be able to print money like it does, and that, that caught on. I mean, I think, uh, but I don't know how you change that dynamic. I mean, who wins the nomination of a president of a, of a party uh, has to do with a you know, the the people who raise the most money and have the most endorsements, that still matters to some extent. Um, but I, I do think that it, the Kucinich story is a reason to, at least in the beginning, kind of suss out who everybody is and, and take them seriously. I mean, that's what I've been doing in house races. Uh, I, I, getting back to that, that part of this, I mean, I, I kind of go through and talk to six or seven candidates and often can't figure out which one is the front runner, but that seems to be good. I mean, I, I'll look at the, instead of agreeing that one person or another deserves to be coronated, you just pay attention to all of them and kind of grill them on the policies. That's uh, that's what the voters are doing. I mean, they, they, and they go to candidate forums. People are concerned with electability, but they have, you know, their, their test of the issues and, that's, and they run through that way. They're not so much concerned with who's going to win until, you know, the week before the primary. Yeah, I think your point about uh, Jeb, the exclamation point is silent Bush and comparing yeah. that to sort of uh, the coverage of Ron Paul is is a good point and that it's not about some like mainstream media conspiracy against the left. I think it has more to do with how political reporting can often uh, uncritically reflect conventional wisdom for reasons good and but also I think more bad than good maybe. And in a lot of the media's inability to to grapple with its with the fact that it doesn't just reflect reality, but helps create it and that they mm-hmm. arguably part of the public service is giving this this kind of at least, you know, uh, fair hearing to the the ideological variety of platforms on display in a given election. 
I'd argue against self-interest and say people should do more research on their own. Uh, it is it is easy now where it wasn't before to say, hmm, this candidate uh, seems interesting. Uh, I wonder if there is video of him talking about what he believes in, <laughs> and there usually is. I mean, often when I'm exploring a uh, congressional race, I will kind of search for a candidate forum, and often it's Republican trackers who put online the debate. And I will skip through the boring questions, listen to the interesting questions, and get some sense of what people stand for. Uh, and as a reporter, look, I, I try to do a good job of conveying what the whole debate in the party is. But I'll sometimes go to a forum, and five minutes of the 60 minutes I saw are in there. So I think people should, should take right. it up, uh, take it up for themselves to, to cover people more strongly. Um, uh, you can't, you can't just count on, especially for a lot of these house races, more than more than the presidential. Presidential races are, I think, as long as we have elections, going to be very well covered. Um, the, for a lot of local races, I mean, sometimes I go and I'm, I'm at a party dinner and there's, you know, one TV camera there and then there's, <laughs> then that's me. I remember when I covered, uh, Connor Lamb's, uh, nomination con- convention. Yeah, so the way in Pennsylvania, if there's a resignation, you don't have a primary, you have the party, party co- committee members meet. And, and I think it was about six, 600 people at that one. Um, I remember very vividly it was me and uh, Mike Elk from The Guardian and uh, a guy from Mother Jones and a couple more people. Uh, and then there was local TV that was packing up before he got the nomination. So they didn't have to, and, I, and I looked around, I was like, why is this? And they said, oh, well, there was a police shooting last week and the funerals today. We have to cover that. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to shame them. I'm saying it's the owners of those stations have shrunk them down so that there's the one camera on Saturday to go cover this stuff. And you don't have the ability to send the reporter to both. So, as a voter, what you should think think of is what can I be doing here to, uh, you know, what 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 can I be doing to inform myself? And and that's the thing that drives me craziest to somebody who covers this is I I don't expect much of you know Rick Sandholm going on CNN and being very well informed <laughs> about what's happening in Democratic primaries. Um, but the people on Twitter who are like such and such as a corporate Democrat, I'm like, well, you know investigate, approve it a little bit. Uh, maybe he's given some answer, but keep in mind too, um, the media might be doing less work to describe what's happening in campaign to you than political operatives. I mean, uh, again, I, I just said that trackers are the reason I, I'm able to see many of these debates that I can't attend because they'll, they'll be a Republican tracker and they'll the crowd and they'll film the whole thing and they'll put it on YouTube. Uh, you know, trackers and, and tracking sites are, are how you often see these quotes get out there. There was a very good uh, New York Times story by Ashley Parker, who's now at the Post, in 2015 about how America Rising, this Republican opposition research group, was targeting Democrats. And this is before anyone talked about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and all that. Um, targeting Democrats just by, you know, ca- capturing stuff where Hillary had voted against or was set against the party. Uh, set against uh, liberals, and they'd they'd pass it on, and and so you, they didn't care. I mean, they were fine with her position. This goes back to the Makaka moment. The importance of trackers, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you'll see. You would see these. Uh, um, well, beyond the trackers, I'm saying, like the I'd say the Washington Free Beacon or something is more has more of an interest than your local news station in letting you know that this Democrat had like a bad answer on on healthcare or something. So, I mean. Pretty frequently, I'll go and double check. Uh, hey, what was the whole answer in that in that question? And it's longer. I can do that. And I've, again, I've my job is to be online and calling people all day to cover politics. Not everyone can, but I'd recommend people do more of that. And I mean, if it sounds like a cop out, I'm I'm sorry, but you should people should take advantage of this. You have the the ability to see, am I, is this candidate you know bullshitting me or not? 
Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, agreed. The the gatekeeper role of uh, the MSM is greatly weakened these days, no, no doubt. Um, speaking of of uh, races that people are grossly uninformed on, uh, namely myself, what, what's going on in, in Minnesota? There's a multi-white Democratic congressional primary, and then Tim Pawlenty, who, former governor Tim Pawlenty, who, after his time in office, served as Big Finance's top lobbyist, is now running for governor again. <laughs> the the Palenti thing was interesting because I, I was in Minnesota when that news happened and with Republican voters, and they were like, oh, well, fine, sure. I mean, he's not somebody that the state was pining for since he left. Uh, and again, he yeah, he left in order to become a financial industry lobbyist, uh, or as he put it on his website, I think a small business advocate. <laughs> like, it's never it's never a good a good sign when you can't say what you're for, what you actually do for a living when you have to kind of spin it. Um, so he also, I mean, practically speaking, if you asked Ted Strickland or Charlie Crist if you were a governor in 2008 and 9 and 10 then you presided over a ton of job loss in your final years. And so Democrats, I found, were pretty optimistic about anybody they had being able to beat him. Maybe he starts with more money, but he, again, he has the kind of job where um, – he has the kind of job where uh, uh, if he, when he raises a ton of money, he's going to have to answer for how much of it came from outside the state from financial companies that he had breakfast with. Uh, and whereas with Democrats, yeah, yeah, it's really wide open. They had um, conventions – uh, over the last week, where the DFL they are started, yeah, the DFL started to, to narrow down their congressional candidates, but um, have not. Derived. The same thing happened in California, where there's enough people running that no one was a clear front. There's in each in each of these races, there's an open first district, open eighth district, um, and in the open districts, which are I'd say the two best Republican pickup opportunities of the year, um, there are clear front runners who have not gotten everyone else out of the race, um, and then in a uh, in the suburban seats that they're trying to win back, uh, the one that gets the most negative attention is uh, Jason Lewis's seat, where Andrew Craig is making a second run for that. It's a district that looked like it was going to break against Trump. It did break against Trump uh, uh, by a little bit, by like a point, but she underperformed the ticket. And she has a you know, former campaign worker, Bernie person, who – and I think I should say here is just a matter of, of practical storytelling. <laughs> one reason that you hear about all the um, animosity in the party is that the – Insurgent candidates are very happy to call me and talk. I mean, after the Lauren Moser thing happened, I probably got 11 emails from candidates themselves saying, hey, I'm also in a crowded primary and the party's screwing me over. Uh, I'd love to talk about it. Of um, course, <laughs> the, the party the party back candidates tend to hide behind uh, hide behind an advisor or something. Um, so in those races, yeah, they're, they're crowded, but they're pretty optimistic. I mean, uh, I, have, I, I, I don't ignore polling. The polling – uh, shifts back and forth on who will control the House. What I do find is just that Republican enthusiasm is very hard to to recreate, just as it was for Democrats when Obama was facing his midterms in 2010. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and I find there's a, there's something revealing in the way that every week there's a different uh, Republicans focus on this could be a problem for Democrats. I mean, the discussion of whether Democrats would be in trouble if they talk more about impeachment. Well, yeah, maybe they are, but. Like a week ago, <laughs> wasn't uh, but even that cuts Pelosi's both ways. Unpopularity going to be enough to to yeah. take him out? I thought I thought it was. Um, oh, it would definitely cut. Well, I don't want to get too much into that. It definitely cuts both ways. But I just sum it up as um, it's probably you know Pete Roskam in Illinois and uh, Jason Lewis in Minnesota don't want to come back and say oh, no, that's why I voted to protect Donald Trump's tax returns from uh, the public. <laughs> 
but I, I'm not talking. I, I, this is the first time I mentioned Trump. I think in the whole conversation, and maybe I mentioned once, and someone will fact check me. Because um, Trump's kind of, I mean, it's, it's understood in a Democratic primary that you're running to put a check and balance on him. Uh, it's not that much of a defi- defining issue in these primaries. They're they're messy because there's a couple of electable seeming people in each race, and there's a couple of uh, key issues that you see the di- the difference on. Uh, I've generally found that anyone who's not at least can't at least talk about universal health care is is like a dead letter. He's not getting anywhere. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hello, this is Daniel Denver, host of the show that you are listening to. The Dig has launched its spring fundraising drive, and we're aiming to hit at least 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig by the end of June. We don't paywall our shows, i.e. we give them to you for free. And so we depend on your support to keep this thing running smoothly. That said, we do have cool stuff to send those of you who do donate. Contribute $10 or more a month, and I will mail you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other great left-wing authors put out by Verso and other publishers. And that's not it. I just started a weekly newsletter for everyone donating at least $5, which, amongst other things, offers ideas for future reading from me and from my guests. Please take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We can't do this without you, so please and thank you. And back to the show. Let's talk about New York, where obviously there's some very serious shit underway. Um, uh-huh. Cynthia Nixon is challenging governor. Andrew Cuomo in the Democratic primary. Cuomo still way ahead in the polls, but he seems genuinely freaked out and his camp is going after Nixon hard. What's your take about what's going on there? Cuomo has a way of, of when he's in trouble, throwing up a lot of dust. Uh, and I'm not covering New York as close as some people. I just, the last race he had against Zephyr Teachout, that was what happened, was um, he probably gave her an opening uh, that she never would have had because he, he campaigned helped a lawsuit to get her kicked off the ballot. Um, he snubbed her in a very public way at a parade. They were both marching in when she tried to say hi. You know, Nixon starts with a lot more fame. And also, Nixon. the, the difference are, are immediately is that Nixon secured the Working Families Party nomination this past weekend. I mean, as, I don't know when this runs, but that's the, the middle of April, basically. Um, whereas Teachout lost the Working Family Party's nomination uh, because Cuomo was worried about her, panicked, and made a deal with the WSP to move to the left if he got if he got another term, um, they had enough of that by now. Yeah, but it was a fool me twice, uh, shame on us situation because yeah. uh, they it was clear that they were moving to endorse Nixon and quote, the Empire struck back in Cuomo's trademark Machiavellian fashion by uh, with these major unions pulling out of the Working Families Party before the endorsement. And then allegedly, I think Cuomo denies this, but allegedly calling for unions to pull support, financial support from grassroots groups that are supporting Nixon. 
Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that, that well, that was happening. I'm not sure how alleged it is that, that Cuomo was among the people encouraging the unions to dump the WFP, and these these union statements. Uh, oh, you know, uh, that, that's, why they that's had confirmed. The WFP, yeah. That there definitely was like you you definitely could hear like the the puppet hand moving <laughs> when you read those statements about how this left wing party had moved away from its roots and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, she's already ahead of where Teachout was in that race, and you know, the Cuomo response is going to be. I'm I'm standing up to Trump. Don't blow it by throwing somebody uh, in this who can't win the election. Um, I, but again, as somebody who thinks primaries are both interesting to cover and also can move candidates, I mean, uh, I, she's already done that. Again, I, I don't think I don't know what the evidence for Cuomo shifting his marijuana position without her in the race would be. I think she did that because she's in there. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, even before it's fascinating. Even before. Nixon was in the race. The left was already moving Cuomo, who is by disposition, not not of the left by by any means, like right. look till last year when he announced his free college plan with Bernie at his side. Uh, completely. And Bernie's people today are try, basically saying, keep my name out of your mouth. Like, don't pretend you're the Bernie candidate. Um, I think Bernie will team up with any anybody who uh, will work with him on an issue. He doesn't think long term about – I mean, this is something I'm kind of wrestling with in the piece I'm writing. He, Bernie does not probably to his detriment if he wants to be president – um, does not you know demand favors and go to this district if you help him out. Remember how this guy backed him and uh, and this guy was took two an extra two weeks to endorse him. He doesn't care about that stuff. If Cuomo is the most transactional candidate in America, Bernie's like the least. Yeah, I, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, okay, so California, Kevin DeLeon, who is he the Speaker of the State Assembly? Is that right, or State Senate? The State Senate President. Okay, State Senate President is running with support from the 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 Bernie very. Bernie Cradleline, California Nurses Association, against Diane Feinstein, and he's running behind with way less money, but forces backing him did successfully deny her the party endorsement. What are the dynamics of the race, and does he have a chance of making up what what appear to be a, appears to be a pretty significant gap? Well, um, his job number one is to get into just come in second. In in the June primary. Oh, because California uh, has this crazy system, jungle primary. California system. has the jungle primary. Uh, Democrats ideally want um, they, they they want this. They want a a Newsom Villarosa gubernatorial race and a and a Feinstein um, De Leon Senate race. In part because Republicans won't have anything to vote for statewide in the fall if that's what happens. So in the meantime, he's he's not getting a lot of pushback to quit the race. I mean, initially he was. And there are – look, there are people in Democratic politics who just don't want any conflict and want to just hold on their power. So they want him out of there. But in the meantime, he's doing no harm at all. And I think the smart smarter Democrats are like, let's see if the guy gets running room. Um, it all sets up a situation where <laughs> – Feinstein will probably need Republican voters to get reelected. But uh, look, a super PAC founded by National Nurses United just went on the air just over last week for De Leon in Los Angeles just for a day. I mean, they're just trying to plant a couple of flags so that in advance of June 5th, if if maybe 17 percent of New York of uh, California voters vote for him, then they're satisfied with that. They're the real ramp up comes later. So in terms of the, the governor's race that you just referred to, to um, take Brown's place, you have Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, who's running as the leftier candidate against former L.A. Mayor Antonio Villagrosa. And it's an interesting case because I remember so clearly when Newsom first won uh, uh, election as mayor in San Francisco years back. Um, he was, Matt Gonzalez. Yeah, he was 
certainly the more business aligned Democrat. And I mean, Matt Gonzalez was a green um, and was pretty despised by by the left, as I recall. And now he's this he left was, uh, candidate. He emerged in politics as the businessman uh, who promised to crack down on homelessness by <laughs> taking away <laughs> benefits for the homeless. Yeah. And now he's the left yeah. candidate against Villagorosa. Um, and yeah. I think and I find the, this uh, for profit college candidate. Yeah. God almighty. And uh for me, this reflects this, this problem, not just in California, but everywhere in the U.S. for the left, where that is, there's this obviously we've been talking about the whole interview, this incredible energy amongst voters that's moving leftwards. But the left bench is so empty. And so people who are not real leftists like Newsom get to play like they are. There's this incredible surge, but the left doesn't have yet the institutional capacity to channel it. I think in some places, yes. I think in uh, municipal races, this is where Bernie's group has been so effective. It's just turning out that uh, it turns out that if you uh, elevate somebody running for city council with an extra twenty thousand dollars, that's the difference to winning and losing, and yeah. you have much less of a splash in a big statewide race. So he's, I think, I, I, my general, my my general, the, the dumbest people in American politics are the ones who try to start a. Uh, independent pre- campaign for president every four years and do no no work in between. And the Sanders model is the, the exact opposite. Like you elect a bench everywhere and then in a couple of years you, you figure out where you are, um, you know, for will that – where's the left going to be after we first take over as many cities as possible? That's his model. Uh, and, yeah, I think that, that's a good point. I mean Newsom has um, – uh, Newsom has settled the right things. Um He's backing single pair on left wing issues, but he's generally. I mean, what he reminds me of. Uh, I was talking to Chris Coster, who ran and lost for governor of Missouri in sixteen. He was a attorney general who was going to be, um, who was going to be the next big thing in Missouri politics, and he was. He just it, he he lost. Uh, <laughs> and he and I remember him say, saying, you know, as, as somebody from a state that was very culturally conservative. Um, he 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 was interested in what people like Cuomo were doing of ways that you can rebrand the Democratic Party, um, not necessarily as ideological, but as problem solving, et cetera. You know that didn't work for him. And I think Newsom started out doing that, and then made it a shift to the left because that's where the party was. And again, all this is like every 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 important development here is a case of the base moving the candidates, and the candidates either losing or going along with it, which I think is. Uh, the, the people that were, are going to complicate this plan are the ones who run as Trump opponents and say that's you know try to neutralize the issue by saying we are all in this together to fight Trump. I remember um, during the Daniel Lipinski thing that was the most common answer of kind of on the fence Democrats uh, when asked about Lipinski was they just didn't want there to be a primary at all. Like you know that's a million dollars that could be spent to beat some other guy. Uh, and I think uh, a base that has watched a bunch of winnable elections get lost over the last ten years is like, yeah, enough of you. <laughs> we're not. We're, we don't. We don't care about that. I encourage you or someone uh, else who's listening to write a a profile of Newsom because I think um, something really covering his the 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 long arc of his career would be revealing. Because if I remember correctly, he first starts positioning himself more. To the left, when San Francisco in I don't know what year this was, maybe 2005, started issuing uh, gay, marriage. gay marriage licenses on its own and went rogue, and he became kind of a, a hero at that moment. And now, his his uh, two two of the biggest points of his platform are this interesting combination of the more Bernie Crat left and the more hashtag resistance left. On the one hand, mm-hmm. he has single payer, 
um, which I think is great. And on the other hand, he's like mega donor Tom Steyer is all about impeaching Trump, which I think is sort of a mainstream liberal distraction that's not particularly helpful. I think you I think you boil it down. It's um, the people I hear most often often uh, talking about Trump are, are like the people in safe suburban districts or districts with, like urban districts where they never really get a challenge, like Al Green and Jamie Raskin. Al Green represents the black parts of Houston. Jamie Raskin represents like Montgomery County, Maryland, just and outside of D.C. When, yeah, and when Jamie Raskin goes home, I have no doubt that people are like, "How can we remove Trump from office?" Um, more than they are saying, "Hey, I yeah. can't pay for my kids' college education." And I think, I think my that, parents are in that district. I can confirm that they're probably telling him just that. <laughs> well, but I'm saying that they're, they're, the universe of their problems. I mean, Democratic Party to win needs those six people who are basically doing fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Attitudinally dislike Trump. Uh, that's probably going to help, help them take the house. But I think that's where that's that's the dynamic I see there. Another question on the left faker issue that we've been discussing that you've written about um, in New York, this young business guy, uh, Siraj Patel, is running against Representative Carolyn Maloney. And after I read your piece about that, after yeah. reading that piece, I went down a little bit of a, a, a rabbit hole because there were so many red flags about this guy as a supposed leftist. He, he's running to her left, but there is like nothing about him that suggests to me that he comes from the left at all. He's the president of the Sun Group of Companies, a, quote, national real estate development and investment firm specializing in the hospitality industry, a.k.a. this big hotel company founded in part by his dad. And to me, he seems like this overachieving rich kid who just moved to New York, was voting in Indiana, I think, as recently as like 2016, has no background Mm -hmm. on the grassroots left, has worked for McKinsey and teaches business school. And so this to Mm -hmm. me is another example of like, wow, there is this possible momentum that could like more interestingly and authentically challenge Maloney from the left. Um, but I don't know. He doesn't seem like it to me. Well, and that's the point that she made to me was Maloney was like, you need to look at the guy's record and like nothing was stopping him from being a, uh, a nothing was stopping him from being a political activist, you know, without portfolio, without serving in office. And what was he doing? He wasn't doing any of that, which is a fair point. Uh, and I, you know, Rokan I think has endorsed her over him. Roe I think of as, the classic example of a Democrat who people thought was Trojan horse, who was going to be to the yeah. right of uh, the incumbent, and actually has been I mean, he's been pretty interesting. He's the model that you're going to yeah. see quote. Well, not just that, but he is his pitch was explicitly we have like an old guy who falls asleep at meetings representing our district. <laughs> it's a safe district. We should have somebody who takes lead, and he did. I mean, he's totally been doing that. So that was the Siraj model, and like Kana, there's not a ton of evidence. Uh, his only, I mean, his social media life, which they were scrubbing, was you know, he's kind of a frat boy. It's about as much as they came up with. But no, it's something. Uh, no, and that stuff is bad. The social to, media stuff is bad, yeah. frankly. I'm not one to like nitpick yeah, on that, but it's bad. He's joking about like how sexy these gymnasts are. And uh, about like statutory that. rape. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so he's, if you're a voter there, you can go to these forums and see him take questions with her and the question is whether you trust him or not. But yeah, yeah. even that's an example. Like he, uh, he was comparing himself to you know. I asked about um, uh, Reshma Sajani, who ran against Maloney in that district in 2010, and he was pointing out correctly. Sajani was she wasn't making necessarily a, a left wing argument. Um, she was she was saying let's um, you know we need new leadership quote quote unquote new leadership. She got a ton of money, but it was mostly because of uh, Wall Street connections, whereas Patel is mostly from family real estate connections, so make of that what you will. But Patel is pointing out, I think, correctly, like, I am running a 
we need a progressive champion in the in the seat, and she and she's not one, uh, which is different than what was run before. Uh, and that's where the party's at. Like that's the only the only insurgent campaign that is is ever going to win. You at least have to frame yourself as I'm going to move this to the left. Yeah, I'm not saying if I lived in the district, I wouldn't vote for him over her. I'd have to do more more research. But I'm just saying on first blush, it's not. Yeah. it doesn't prove particularly attractive. Um, I mean, a lot of candidates who are a lot of first time candidates in the cycle. Um, if you just go there, if you become their friend on Facebook, they you can go back and they have you know pictures of them marching at anti-war marches and the women's march yeah. and all that. Like so, they've been doing stuff, and yeah, he hasn't been doing as much of that. I want to return to where we started, which is the state of the Republican Party. We don't have time to get into a, a lot of depth here, but but what's the current state um, in terms of primary fights underway, and is there any significant force within the party that is not in lockstep with Trump? Any significant force that's not lockstep? No, significance the key word there. I mean, there. Um, There's Bill Crystal the, on the Twitter. Ryan, the, <laughs> the Ryan Wing made this transactional case that, uh, well, we were in power, so let's use this guy to get as much as we possibly can. And he is not selling it. I mean, he, I think it's some kind of tax event as we're talking. He's going off script and talking about Syria and stuff. Uh, but you know, he's got a hand in all, the handle sign bill, so you're you're good. You're good on that. Um, uh, but uh, no, there's not really a powerful wing of the party breaking away. And the, the other thing is the crystal wing. Uh, I'm more familiar with Evan McMullen. I mean, I've t- talked to him a lot. And um, last time I talked to him, a month ago or so, I mean, I, he's saying like he thinks it's important that there people vote for a Democratic Congress this time. It's like we need a check and balance on Trump. We need a Democratic Congress. But he was not ready to go, and then we need to vote for a Democrat for president in 2020. And this is the thing, frankly. Um, I forget who made this point, but if um, if there were term limits for Supreme Court nominees, you know Trump might have lost because the stakes of having a Democratic president for four years would have been so much different for a yeah. right winger. Um, if in 2020 the same issue is going to be there, it's like, well, how much do I actually want to? Uh, how much uh, do I dislike Trump versus how much do I want like President Gillibrand or whatever go in there? And you can already I, I keep mentioning those groups that are let's raise a bunch of money from venture capitalists to create a third party that nobody votes for. I mean, I already see that's going to be a huge thing in 2019. Of um, well, we all agree that Trump <laughs> Trump shouldn't be president. We don't want to move too far to the left, and we need a, a centrist option that believes in means tested solutions for families, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to see that again. Is McMullen uh, the candidate of those forces, or? And McMullen, I think, will, will probably not do it again. I think they're going to. Um, it's a, a lot of a lot of noise, but um, look, that's going to be the idea that one party has moved too far. Uh, in one direction, like the, that's part of our conversation now with the Republican Party. But um, again, people are not really bailing on them. Uh, but that's what I'm trying to do in covering Democrats: is saying, well, let's we can have the argument of whether they've moved far, too far left to win, but let's see what far left is, because um, it seems like Republicans have just lost a lot of their, their I'd say, their fitness. Uh, they're like their vigor reaction, <laughs> reaction time. Well, even I, if you watch uh, the the only the last congressional race before the midterms is probably this one in Arizona uh, that ends on the 24th. And if you watch the debates between the Democrat, who's an emergency room physician, very good natural candidate, um, and the Republican, who's a state senator, kind of mediocre a candidate, um, the Democrat is a basically every a plan to make Medicare use universal by letting younger people buy into it. And the, Demo- and the Republican just doesn't know how, what to say about it, except that it's, it's expensive. <laughs> so, and this is what I'm what I'm saying: is the debate inside the Democratic Party is actually pretty robust, and people are saying why this would work, why this wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. 
robust despite there being apart from what Matt Bruning's doing, no like well, I guess EP, EPI. There's a couple. Yeah. There's a couple of think tanks that guessing this, but compared to what's on the right, you know, compared to the stuff that's on there, if you say I want to put prototype social security, you can, you know, hit a button and get twenty plans uh, on how you would do that. Um but the on their on the left, the, the the debate they're having and the way these plans work I find just interesting. And uh there's not as much rancor and division about those plans as you would think. It's it when I see division in the primaries it is much more about this is a must-win election, and we need to win. So let's not screw it up. And that doesn't usually, for voters, it doesn't come back down to who's left-wing. It comes down to, are you a veteran or not? <laughs> or like, are uh, you know, does your do you live in the district? Does your bio make sense for us? You know, can you handle yourself in a debate? Last question. Looking ahead to 2020, it looks like the almost the entire field is trying to move. The potential field is trying to move mm-hmm. to the left quickly to pick up Bernie Kratt votes. Um, I also Mm -hmm. think that there's a growing consensus on the left left that Bernie Sanders has to be the left's candidate in Mm -hmm. 2020. What's your take on the possible field? I don't think a lot about it. I don't think people are taking it very seriously. And I know that because I, when I, I sometimes will ask voters at forums and the rest of the country who they like, and they just uh, they, they don't think about it. They, they, there's a sense of emergency that they need to, get a Congress that would, can at least investigate Trump and slow him down, um, and then they'll deal with it. And that's like not a dodge. I mean, I ask everybody if they have a preference. They don't yet. Um, so when it comes to the camps themselves, I think um, having seen them give speeches, uh, I think Warren is still at this point kind of underrated as a as a compelling speaker yeah. um, and has taken moves. She says, and she told me what's like three days ago, she's not running for president, but whatever. That, that's not legally binding. <laughs> Obama wasn't running for president. Either. No, she's, I think, because she's never run for anything but the Senate. I mean, she's waging, at age 67 or something, she's waging her second election ever this year. Uh, she just has a normal normal human being quality that I think other people don't have. Uh, Jill Brand does not, as somebody who's been, a, um, and I'm not. Uh, I think she's gotten better. I've seen her better and worse. I've seen her very good in kind of Q and A formats, but in the stirring speech, she I think she's still kind of like slotting stuff in that doesn't quite play. But she has a uh, probably the best sense of any, any. She's operating on the representative Kennedy level in the stirring speech. Yeah, I'd say so. Genre. And she's um, but she has probably the best sense of where the party's voters are going. Um, and Harris, I think, is is in that category. Just has like how would I put it? I mean, just, I think is a little bit too too glib sometimes um i mean yeah. she had something that would be she 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 had something that i think would would have been a story if this was like you know july 2019 she was running for president would be a story where she was on with ellen and ellen asked her this dumb question and uh ellen degeneres i should say uh, ellen, oh i know who about, you like, meant hey, <laughs> yeah yeah this dumb i think she only goes by ellen now anyway the stupid question is like if you were an elevator with uh trump and pence and someone else and you know what, what, what would you what would you say? And she she said like, does one of us have to get out alive? And I'm like, that's a. I listened to that and said, one, that's a joke. I don't understand. Well, are they murdering each other in the elevator? Is this like the, that, that, that M.I. Shalomon produced movie where there are the devils in the elevator? And two, like, yeah, don't don't say that. I mean, she just has kind of like a. I, I feel like she doesn't connect uh, as much as people think she she would. But look, the thing about this is um, it's important. One reason people, I think, on the left got excited about Obama was that he very strategically 
Um, now he did it. He got his staff in a large places from Tom Daschle and Dick Gephardt, but there were choices you could make in 2015 as a Democrat about who you'd align with. And he turned down the DLC. He became an advocate against Social Security privatization. He opposed the, the Bush Supreme Court nominee, et cetera. He took like he took, he made choices uh, when the party was looking for its soul to, and bailed on on the centrists. Uh, he just happened to hire them all back when he was president, right? <laughs> uh, and so. This is a thing about I think that um, there are a lot of candidates remind me of Obama in that they're not they have a lot of promise they're not that good right now on the stump, and the, the evidence that they're going to be reliably left wing if elected is is not quite there um, less than there was for him I mean no one state senator Barack Obama so that guy governed in 2008 things or nine things have been very different right uh, and uh, I see a lot of that and so I see that's why people are uh, are, are think that Bernie's the only person you can trust. I don't. I'm not sure if if he, if he sees it that way. Uh, and I'd say there's the second tier of Democrats who I found very impressive when I've seen them. Obviously, the stakes are lower for Eric Garcetti to impress people when he shows up. But no, uh-huh. Eric Garcetti, they're probably horrible on a bunch of issues that, that are important to the left. You know, trying to bring the Olympics to city, uh, saying he wants to work with Trump on infrastructure long after it's clear it's not going to happen. Um, but you know, Mitch Landrew again, horrible in a lot of ways for on issues on the left. If I'm a, if I'm a Republican think tank, not think tank, the Oppo group, what I'm doing is collecting all the ways in which they are going to piss off the parity base if they if they if they're competing for the presidential nomination. Um, but at the moment, no, they're all pretty credible. Is that mayor of South Bend going to jump in? I mean, maybe, but I I I, I don't <laughs> think I don't think it. It, it I mean, he's. The real story with him is he's got a very good press team uh, that uh, who's everyone who acknowledges are very good at handling the press. Everyone will also acknowledge the last people they handled that they worked for was Martin O'Malley. So, uh, and, he, and, he, and he is a, like the Martin yeah. O'Malley. His like whole selling point is like a total echo of Martin O'Malley. A little bit. I mean, I think that there's not much. Look, there already is a Democratic candidate for president, uh, John Delaney. Among his his uh, promises are if uh, if I'm president, my first hundred days I'm only going to do bipartisan bills, and it's amazing. Like any, anyone in the, in the party, left or right, their lesson from Obama has become: we blew a huge advantage by not just ramming as much through as possible in the first first year, first two years, um, you know, through the budget process, <laughs> like uh, not trying to get 60 votes for things. We should have done more. Like, cause look at these guys. And I don't think that he's going to get a lot of steam. I, I mean, I think again, you're going to hear in the press and the the, the um, not me, but here <laughs> some of the press, uh, you're going to get some of the, um, the the wealthy people who want third parties. They're going to praise the centrist candidates. It's just that's not where people are at. Um, but I, I think that they're, they're not really thinking about that until. I'd say in seven months, <laughs> like after we have a midterm, the day after who won that thing. I mean, I think if John McCain, I believe, jumped in the presidential race like a week after the 2006 midterms, uh, and you'll probably see something like that. Dave Weigel, thank you very much. Thanks for the, yeah, thanks for having me. Dave Weigel is a reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after hopefully remarking that the free press is the ubiquitous vigilant eye of a people's soul, the embodiment of a people's faith in itself, the eloquent link that connects the individual with the state and the world, 
the embodied culture that transforms material struggles into intellectual struggles and idealizes their crude material form. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends and family about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but not least, please make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash the dig to help keep this thing going over the long haul.